This is missions month here at Wake Chapel. Lots of churches have uh, a missions weekend or a missions week. Uh, and we simply have not gotten to the place where we can quite do that yet. But we have a missions month, four Sundays during the month, when we have our missionaries, as those who are at home can, come and be with us. And uh, this morning we have Dr. Charles Pettit, uh, president of Piedmont International University. Now... um, that's a place that's dear to my heart, uh, and Louise's and David Brown's. Uh, we all spent a great deal of time there. Um, Louise uh, spent part of her time while she was at Piedmont uh, at Salem College in the music department there, and uh, she didn't get a degree from Piedmont. But yet there's another side uh, Piedmont students know, and people that have been around Piedmont and Winston-Salem know, uh, many of the women come to Piedmont, it used to be Bible College then, uh, came to Piedmont Bible College to get an MRS degree. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I'm going to cut her off at that point. (laughs) You see the flags uh, around the room. And uh, in your bulletin, your worship folder last week, there was a sheet like this. I hope you've kept it, uh, telling you the countries that these flags represent. And uh, trust that will be a reminder to pray for the missionaries that we support in these countries. Uh, our missions budget has grown over the number of years, and we are grateful to the Lord for what He has enabled us to do to, to, to partner with others in missions. Dr. Pettit was on the mission field before he came back to be president of Piedmont International University. So he sees a, a lot of sides to missions uh, that some of us don't see. He knows what it is to be on the field. And he knows what it is to be in the States and heading up a university. And we are grateful to the Lord for him. His lovely wife is with him this morning, and we are delighted to have both of them here. Uh, Dr. Pettit, if you'll come, you're welcome here at Wake Chapel. And thank you for being our guest this morning. God bless you, sir. Appreciate it. (laughs) Well, good morning. Good Good to be back. And I love being here. Love your pastor. Love all the connections uh, to Piedmont historically here and for the partnership that we have and our goal to accomplish the uh, same things. And it's also good to be at a church where there is stability and leadership. I get in a lot of churches and I go places where you go there one year and you go back the next year and they're a different church. You go back two years later and they're a different church again. And it's kind of nice to see a place where there is stability and a desire to go forward in a direction and just stick with that and to have leadership that is consistent and in this case, pastoral leadership, been here about 30 years. I love that. It's a delight to be here. Thank you guys for allowing me to come back. And we are going to talk a little bit about missions and world evangelism and the verse that I saw on your screen a few minutes ago from Matthew 28 that says that we're to go and make disciples of all nations. And we're going to talk about that focus in just a minute. Um, but I'll give you the short infomercial about Piedmont first, get that out of the way, and then we'll go do something a little more important and more fun. But I see all these young people here. It was nice hearing about Merge. 
Uh, Piedmont, a number of years ago, about 14 years ago, decided that we would embrace innovation, technology, the Internet, and all the networking that that can produce. And in those years, we've actually developed relationships, and six other Christian universities have joined forces with us in different ways, three of them by direct merger, the most recent being Tennessee Temple University uh, out of Chattanooga, Tennessee, merged with Piedmont about a year and a half ago. Every one of those has given us a new kind of a boost, a new way to move forward. And so we've seen about 250% increase in our, in our enrollment. And we have now enrolled students from over 80 countries on the planet. And we've expanded our offerings to now have about 50 undergraduate majors and minors and a large variety of graduate masters and doctorates as well in both the biblical studies and ministry areas and in some other areas as well. We also decided maybe 13, 14 years ago that we had to directly take on the challenge of reversing two horrible trends in higher education that have been going on in this country. There are more than two, but there are two that I'm thinking about right now. They are skyrocketing tuition and diminishing returns. Higher ed tuition has increased in America, on average, 1,200% since the year I graduated from high school, 1978. It's been a while. But that increase is twice as much as the increases in health care. And four times worse than the increases in everything else, the consumer price index. At least in healthcare, you're more likely to get a better surgery today than you would have gotten in 1978. There are increases in outcomes on the medical side in many areas. Not so much higher education. While the tuition has gone through the roof, the ability to use that degree has gone the other direction. In a recent nationwide survey, according to a Forbes report, Recent college graduates, one-third of them, said that if they had to do it over again, they would not have gone to college at all because they have the same job they could have gotten right out of high school, but they also have tens of thousands of dollars of debt to deal with. So we decided that those trends were not sustainable. You can't just keep charging more and more and more for something that produces less and less and less all the time. That's not a model that you can sustain. People are not going to forever do that and pay for that. So we decided that we had to reverse both trends. We had to find ways to make the cost affordable to everyone and at the same time make sure that we had the kinds of training programs that included the practical experiences, lots of internships, things that look like apprenticeships, make sure there was competence training in every single degree program so that people will graduate having had lots of training and practical experience all the way through their four years or ever how long their program might be. And we would have to cut the cost. Well, I'm proud to say that God has helped us do both. And uh, as an accredited private Christian university, we have become extremely competitive on the cost side. We took long looks at everything and decided that we could actually utilize the innovations, the technologies, the Internet, and that we could use them not only to improve the quality, but we could really use them to cut out a lot of duplication, what we might just call waste. I remember a few years ago, we took a long, hard look at all the course offerings. And when you have as many degree programs as we do, there's a lot of courses being offered. 
And we found that it was not unusual for us to offer the same course four or five different ways in the same semester. You offer it as a traditional class, the students sitting there in a live classroom. You offer the same class again as an online class. You offer it again as a directed study because somebody can't get it at the right schedule. Maybe you offer it again as a module because you have some international students coming in and they need that particular class. Maybe offer some different assignments and call it a grad class. But every time you teach that same course, it makes up a portion of a professor's load. As an accredited institution and as any sane institution would do, we have limitations on how many courses we would have a professor teach. Four is about a full load, maybe five. So if you're teaching the same course four or five times, it is as if you're paying a full-time faculty member to teach one course. It's not hard to imagine why this could get really expensive really fast. That's just one of many, many, many areas we identified. So we started taking these on directly. We started using the flipped classroom approach. We started using an integrated classroom approach. We started using a lot of technology to pull these things together. And what we saw is that the quality of the courses went up and we were able to cut a lot of the costs on our side and we passed those savings along to students. And about four years ago, we did what I thought would never happen. After increasing tuition almost every year for almost 70 years, we cut tuition by up to 40%. And gave everybody at the school a pay raise at the same time. It's kind of a nice, nice combination. What that means for you is that if you are a student interested in going to college or you know someone who is, they could come to Piedmont, live in our residence halls in Winston-Salem, do it online, or like almost all undergraduate students, do it through some combination of the two. Maybe load up, we only have classes four days a week, Tuesday through Friday. They may load up on Tuesdays and Thursdays and then take a couple of online courses to make up the load or whatever, however they want to do it. But if you were to come here and get the typical scholarship, and by the way, all members of supporting churches of Piedmont get our largest scholarship, which is one-third of tuition. If you come to Piedmont, took a full load, got the full scholarship, your entire annual cost of tuition would be about $6,000. I really don't know, there may be one, but I don't know another accredited Christian private university that can stand here and say that. There may be some, I just don't know who they are. Uh, That's almost exactly the cost of a Pell Grant. So if you actually qualified for the full Pell Grant, got a supporting church scholarship or a major scholarship, you'd be coming to Piedmont almost tuition free. Probably one of the reasons why we're seeing such surges in our enrollment growth has something to do with it. Get a quality education that actually prepares you for life at an affordable price. And with a Christian Bible foundation to every single degree we offer. If you come and earn a bachelor's degree in anything at Piedmont, you can can do a pastoral program, you can study to be a music minister, a youth pastor, a missionary, or you can study to run a nonprofit organization or become a Christian school teacher, or you can actually go to our relationship with High Point University, We have an articulation agreement with them. You can actually come to Piedmont, and four years later, you earn two bachelor's degrees, one from Piedmont and one from High Point. But no matter what degree you might seek or which direction you might go, you're going to be required to get at least 30 credit hours of Bible in your program because we think the Bible is a pretty good foundation for life. 
Yes, you're going to get all your general education courses. You're going to get all your degree-specific courses. We, we meet all accreditation standards, but you're also going to get a Bible foundation. This distinguishes, has always distinguished Piedmont, even from many other Christian universities that might cause, require you to get a sprinkling of Bible. We require you to get a foundation in it. So we'd love to talk to you about online or on campus. And by the way, if you want to go to grad school, we even have master's and a Ph.D. in leadership uh, probably our flagship program size-wise. We have uh, about 125 people working toward a Ph.D. from business, academics, and ministry uh, sides as well. So please uh, chat with us. We have a display out here. We'd love to talk to you for a few minutes afterwards or just look us up online at piedmontu.edu. If you're an athlete, as of this fall, we should have seven scholarship athletic programs. So take a look at us in that regard. We had an interesting blessing this last year. I won't tell you how it happened. I'll be happy to tell you later. It's pretty interesting how God brought all these pieces together because of our interest in ministering to the community. But we ended up as NBA All-Star Josh Howard as our head basketball coach. And so if you want to come and play for an NBA All-Star, let me know. <laughs> all right, how many of you, had your, uh, have not had any, uh, you, you, your bracket has not been busted. Your NCAA bracket has not. <laughs> You're good? You still have like two teams left? Three. Three. Woo! It's good. All right. Well, we're going to talk today about a strategy for reaching the world for Christ. And somewhere we're going to get to a slide in this presentation. It's going to ask the question, should we go about world evangelism haphazardly? Just everything goes? Just anything you want to do is okay? Or should we start thinking strategically? Now, when it comes to your bracket... It really doesn't help to think strategically at all. So um, I talked to my wife and I said, you know what? You should fill out a bracket this year. You should get in the, the Piedmont pool. Now, there's no money in the Piedmont pool. We just, <laughs> just, just bragging rights. Well, she said, well, how you do it? And I said, well, you know, you just go like the ESPN and join the, the Piedmont club there, the, the group Piedmont, and just pick teams. I said, you know, ones are usually better than 16s, and the higher the number, you know, the better chances the team might win, maybe. I said, but other than that, just use whatever strategy you want. She said, well, I don't know anything about any of the teams. I said, well, it doesn't matter. Well, as of this morning, she is in first place at Piedmont. <laughs> Multiple games ahead of me, and she made choices like this. You know, I know two guys named Xavier. <laughs> I think I'll choose Xavier. Xavier wins. <laughs> so you don't need a strategy. Well, no, she's a smart woman, so maybe she did have a strategy. We just don't know. Maybe we need to find out what her strategy is. You probably don't need a strategy to beat somebody in a bracket in the NCAA tournament. But you do need a strategy if you're going to be effective in reaching the world for Christ. And we're going to talk about that. Because that verse that I saw on your slide a few minutes ago that was Matthew 28 said that we're to go and we are to teach all nations. Well, every obedient Christian is going to be involved in that. Because we have it so clearly given to us in black and white right there in the Bible repeatedly that we're supposed to be reaching all nations. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That phrase, all nations, is a is a Greek word, ethne. You hear the word ethnic or ethnos in that, in that word. All people groups. 
languages and cultures and people groups. It's the same idea that you see celebrated in Revelation 5 when we're finally all gathered together and we're there with the Lord and we're singing praises to the Lamb. And it says there in Revelation that there there will be people there from every tribe and tongue and language. Every ethne, every ethnic group is going to be represented there. Do you know where there are a lot of ethne, a lot of ethnic groups? Right here in good old Raleigh, Fuquay-Varina triangle area. In fact, I looked it up, and I found you guys have all kinds of people here in this area who are from different ethnic groups. In fact, all sorts of languages represented right here. Endless numbers, everything from German to Arabic and everything in between. There's a huge list of people here who are speaking another language or from some other ethnic group. And we have been told that it is our responsibility to get the gospel to these ethnic groups. We see the word nations and we usually think political boundary. But in the Bible, it has more to do with a people group. If there's anything that our Lord Jesus made abundantly clear, it is that it is our, as in your and my responsibility to be involved in getting the gospel to these groups. You just cannot be an obedient Christian if you're not involved in this. Just can't be. And he didn't just tell us once. You know, I need repetition sometimes. And if you didn't catch it in these last words of our Lord at the end of the book of Matthew, I mean, he gathers his disciples. He's getting ready to go back to heaven. Let me tell you your marching orders. Let me give you your command. I've saved these words for last. These are the marching orders of the church of Jesus Christ. But if you didn't catch it in Matthew, he comes back to us in Mark and says it this way. Go into all the world. Proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And just in case you didn't catch it in Matthew and Mark, he comes back in Luke and says that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to, and this is a very same phrase, ethne all nations just in case you don't catch it in matthew mark and luke he comes back in john and jesus says as the father sent me even so i am sending you now to me that begs a question if i am being sent like the father sent jesus well then i need to figure out how the father sent jesus right because i'm being sent the same way Well, John does not leave us without an answer. He later writes, the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. He wants us to be involved in a world mentality. A missions month is a really good thing because you're tying yourself directly to something close to the heart of our God. For God so loved the world. He has a global mentality in all nations, all ethnic mentality. And just in case you didn't catch it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in those four places, he gives it to us as an imperative. These are orders. They, we are to salute and say yes and go do it. But in the book of Acts, he actually gives it to us not as a command, but instead as a prophecy, which I find kind of intriguing. You ever watching those movies where somebody suddenly finds out they're like a prophet? They're a prophecy. They're like the chosen one. Who, me? I'm just sort of a loser. No, you are the chosen one. You're going to save the world. Well, guess what? We are in a prophecy, and we are the chosen ones. (laughs) And it's kind of cool. 
Not only do we have orders, we are living in the midst of a prophecy and we are a key piece of it. So in Acts 1, he orders his disciples, and this is after the death, burial, and resurrection, and then, you know, some 40 days pass and he ascends back to heaven. This is right at the end of those days, and he's getting ready to ascend back to heaven. He gathers them together. They're still a bit confused. When he had talked about this thing called the kingdom, they had gotten their hopes up about something that was going to be way off in the future, not immediate like they thought. He talked about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and they thought earthly kingdom right now. (laughs) This guy who can walk on water and heal the sick and raise the dead is going to throw off those hated Romans, hopefully kill them all. Peter's ready to fight. He grabs his sword and goes to war. He chops off some guy's ear one time. He's probably not going to be knighted anytime soon. I don't think he was aiming for the ear. He just happened to get the ear. <laughs> He's, they're, they're thinking, take over, empire, power, position, perks. Yeah, that's what they're thinking. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. I want secretary of state. Judas, like, I'm going to be accountant general. You know, they want positions and power. But instead of killing the Romans, seems they killed him. <laughs> Their leader got nailed to a cross. Died a horrible, painful, and really embarrassing kind of a death. What did they all do? They cut and ran. Peter like cursing and swear. I don't even know who that man is. And even after the resurrection, they're still kind of groping, trying to figure it all out, scared that they're going to be killed soon. And they're a tiny little group, like just over 100 of them total. Tiny little group, scared half to death, confused. And Jesus is getting ready to leave them and go back to heaven. And he has this little conversation with them. And he says in Acts 1, verse 4, Don't depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise. So there's a promise. There's a prediction. There's a prophecy. Something is going to happen. And what you find here is that he follows the pattern of many of those Old Testament prophets who would give a long-term prophecy but would validate it with a short-term prophecy. You know, hundreds of years from now, so-and-so is going to happen. <laughs> the people. Anybody can make that up. <laughs> we don't believe that. You're just babbling. Oh, and by the way, six months from now, this is going to happen. Well, that's stupid. You're crazy. That can never happen. And then six months later, it would happen. Exactly as prophesied. And the people would say, you know what? If that prophecy can come true, then so will that other one a long time from now. And Jesus does this here. He gives them a short-term promise or prophecy to validate a long-term one. Now, first of all, the short-term, he said, you're to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is going to happen really soon. You're going to have this baptism. You're going to be empowered. (laughs) Now, folks, they were thinking anything but 
or feeling anything but powerful. They were feeling scared and confused. And so a promise that they're going to have this baptism and they're going to have this power probably sounded really far-fetched. So then they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I have to smile. They're, They're still thinking kingdom, folks. They're not thinking church, gospel to the earth. They're thinking, kill the Romans. (laughs) Build your kingdom. You know, back then we thought you were pretty cool when you could walk on water. Now you've come back from the dead. Now you can appear and disappear. You can walk through closed doors. The Romans are not going to have a chance against you. Are you going to do the kingdom now? They were looking for a prophecy, but they were looking for the wrong one. He says to them, (laughs) I'm not going to give you an answer to that question. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. You're not going to get an answer to the timing of the kingdom question. By the way, he hasn't given us that answer. If somebody comes to you or they write a book or they become a famous TV personality and they say to you, we have it all figured out. We know exactly when prophecy is going to unfold. We've been studying about oil in the Middle East and the alignment of nations. And it's like that guy that wrote that book back in 1988. It was called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Must Come in 1988. Remember that book? Remember that book? Guess what? He was wrong. (laughs) Jesus said you can't know those times. And so if you see that book or you see that show, I will tell you right now that either that person or Jesus is wrong. My guess is it's that person. We will have a kingdom when we have the king and not a minute before. None of us in this room are building the kingdom. That happens when Jesus comes back to this earth. We are to be involved in taking the gospel and seeing the church of Jesus Christ built. He said, it's not for you to know that. But there's something you can know. I will give you a prophecy. In fact, I'll give you two of them. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's the short-term promise. He said, that's going to happen not many days from now. You're going to get this experience and it's going to give you power. And (laughs) this had to sound incredibly insane to a hundred folks scared to death huddling in an upper room in Jerusalem. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. (laughs) Yeah, right. But what happened a few days later? Well, the day of Pentecost happened. They were still huddled together. They were staying like they had been told to. And the Holy Spirit of God came and indwelled them and filled them. They even had these manifestations that were visible. And they were so emboldened and so empowered that these guys who were cursing and swearing and saying, we don't even know who he is, walk out in the middle of Jerusalem right down to the temple. And Peter stands up and preaches. And these guys share the gospel. 
and they have this miracle take place. These are old rednecks from the rough country of Galilee. They're speaking in their old Galilean accent. And this miracle takes place. People from 16 different language groups understand them perfectly in their tongue. Really important for world evangelism. And several thousand people are saved in one day. (laughs) The church goes from a handful to thousands in one day. And those guys thought, you know what? If this can happen, then so can the uttermost parts of the earth. By the way, do you know where the uttermost parts of the earth are? Fuquay Varina. You see, if we kind of think we're the center of Christianity. We're America. We have our flags. We send out missionaries, right? No, 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 no. We're the uttermost parts of the earth. That command was given in Jerusalem on the other side of the earth. They did not know there was a western hemisphere. That gospel has come all the way around the world to us. We are living a prophecy. It's made its way to us. Yeah, we're involved in getting the world out the gospel out to the rest of the world. Yeah, we ought to be involved in that. In fact, we have to be, or we're just disobedient. But we are living in the middle of a prophecy, so get involved in world evangelism. First of all, because we are commanded to do so, and secondly, because there is a cool prophecy and we get to be in it. But the question again, and this is the one slide you're going to notice that the words are off. You can't just haphazardly put together a slide presentation and treat all slides differently and think they're all going to come out the same, right? Does God have a creative and biblical strategy to bridge the gaps between the world ethnic or are there methods or all methods and approaches equally valid? I remember wanting to serve Christ. I was the age of some of you guys right here. I was wrestling with my own sinfulness and struggles and also thinking about wanting to go all in for God. And when I made that choice of total surrender and went all in, I'm like, what does that mean? What do I want to do? I can be a pastor. What does God want? Maybe missionary. That's like all in. I started hearing about different things. Somebody said, man, we're going to go start this orphanage. We're going to dig wells. We're going to feed people. Different things. Everything tugs so much at the heartstrings. Everything seemed to be equally valid. And I was connected to a group that focused on church planting. If you weren't a church planter, you weren't right. So I went into church planting because that was what I was pushed hard to do. Dawn and I started a church in southwest Atlanta. And then we went to the West Indies. You have a flag up there from St. Vincent. The three little diamonds represent the main island and the little Grenadine Islands, the beautiful jewels of the Caribbean. We went to that island where you have a missionary, Alan Berry, and we started a church there. Learned a lot. You're supposed to say they haven't changed a bit. (laughs) But this is church. I guess you should be honest. In fact, you probably should be all the time. And... uh, Man, we were missionaries. Raised support, took off to the West Indies. Uh, I tell people about my, learn one thing I really enjoy, spearfishing. We also had to learn to fish for men in different ways because we were working cross-culturally. 
we were the outsiders. And man, we started witnessing to people and we put up this tent. If you ever start a church near the equator, don't, don't start it in a tent. This is not smart. It's hot. <laughs> and don't build homemade benches. That is not comfortable. Man, we witnessed and witnessed, and finally we saw a little fruit. We saw Mildred Lewis. This is Mildred Lewis come to Christ. I'll tell you, though, that it was challenging. From Mildred's perspective, the first time we ever showed up at her house, she didn't hear anything we had to say. All she could think is, those Americans are here. What are they doing here? What are they really up to? Went back a second time, didn't hear anything we had to say. Do my neighbors know that they're here? Does anybody, is anybody going to go there to that tent? Does he really think any of us are going to join with him? I mean, just think of how weird it would be if you were at home this afternoon and somebody from a different continent somewhere, dressed in a very different way, with a very different accent, showed up at your house this afternoon and said to you, we're starting this new religion. Got this tent over here. Next Sunday, we're going to have a new religion. We want you to come. How many of you would go there next Sunday? You're like, you're weird. Go back to that, wherever that is. You know, go back to Malaysia, wherever you're from. Just go back. We already have our way of doing things over here. We don't need you. you know, being the outsider has its challenges. Now, the good news is that Mildred's life was transformed. And eventually, Dolores, her cousin, or sister, rather, came to know Christ. Thankfully, uh, her boy, Gilmore, came to know Christ. And what we found is that there was a culture where most everyone was living together unmarried. And um, many kids, when the girls when they were 13 or 14, were having babies. And their lives were really tough through all that process. And we were hoping to see some young people come to know Christ young and learn biblical principles. And so Gilmore started coming to the church. Eventually, the lady right next door to the tent, Carmina, who had to listen to me all the time because I had speakers. She had no choice but hear the gospel all the time. <laughs> Eventually, Carmina came to Christ. And her daughter, Natasha, started coming to the youth group and came all the way through. And Gilmore and Natasha just did things right. Eventually, they fell in love, got married. He's now serving in our military. This is a recent picture of Gilmore and Natasha. This is D-Roy Simmons. The Rastafarians kind of hated us. And they were very suspicious. The whole religion is a worship of Haley Selassie, and it's tied to anti-colonialism and uh, anti-post-slavery and so forth. They worship Haley Selassie smoke a lot of marijuana and hate white people. But this young, this guy here, I witnessed to him and witnessed to him and witnessed to him. And eventually, through a crazy process, D. Roy Simmons came to Christ as a D. Roy Simmons baptism. Exciting, right? But little by little, I became concerned that it wasn't very strategic. Because every time I met a D. Roy or a Kamina or a Mildred, I had to go through this crazy outsider process again endless conversations just to break through the why are you really here suspicion what are my neighbors thinking and all those different things it was difficult eventually we reached the point where we realized D-Roy Simmons recently in Versailles that God has a creative strategy in the book of Acts he bridged cultures and languages by evangelizing equipping and empowering a select few highly influential self-reproducing nationals. Now, God didn't just throw money aimlessly at every national with a sad story, but carefully selected those who could have a strategic impact. We did this by training James Jackson, Linnaeus Lave, church planting on St. Vincent today. 
Dexter Kirby, he came to know Christ at 11. He eventually came to Piedmont, earned a master's degree, uh, bachelor's and master's online, went back to the country of St. Vincent and planted a church in the capital city. He called me and said, I'd like to come down and have you preach my opening meetings. I said, I won't do it. This is not going to be the story of God, the outsiders, and Dexter Kirby. How about let the story be God and Dexter Kirby and the Vincentians? Let God use you. And God has used you, him. I said, I'll come down two years from now and affirm you. And in a country where the average church has about 35 people in it, I went down two years later and saw this. So exciting. Then they started building the building. God gave them the choice place. They were connected to so many different people. And I went down for the grand opening of the church and preached a couple years ago to this crowd. This was only about half. Everybody else was on the lower level. All the young people were on the lower level. And people are coming to Christ in large numbers, and he has an influence. This is his church building. My daughter went down. She's an artist. She drew this seven-foot stained glass window, actually by blowing through a tube to get all that paint on the windows. And they are having national impact. Recently, they dedicated a portion of their brand-new international airport, and Dexter Kirby was asked to come and say some words over it and pray over it. He's beginning to have an influence in the nation. This is God's uh, strategy, evangelizing, equipping, and empowering a select few highly influential self-reproducing nationals. Now, I mentioned a few minutes ago there were 16 language groups. They're spelled out in Acts 2. How are you going to get the gospel to them? If you're that early church, 120 people, how are you going to get the gospel to those 16 language groups? Well, you could send two couples, like mission agencies do, to each language group. And they'll take years and years and years learning the language, overcoming the outsider status, maybe never having a single conversation with an influential person. Be like William Carey, go and seven years later, finally one person gets saved. And years later, that one person finally gets baptized. Or you could do something more strategic. You could bring the 16 language groups to Jerusalem, kind of like God has brought the world to the triangle. See them come to Christ while they're outside of their element and in your city. And then send the 16 language groups back home. Do you know who took the gospel to those 16 language groups? The people from the 16 language groups when they went home. These were influencers. They had enough money to travel abroad. They had traveled to Jerusalem for the festivities. And they spread the gospel by simply going home. How about the other ethne in the book of Acts? Which do you think would be more strategic? Send Philip as a missionary to Ethiopia. Or bring an Ethiopian to Philip. Let him get saved here and let the Ethiopian carry the gospel back to Ethiopia. Well, we could argue about what we think, but we know what Acts 8 says. God brought the Ethiopian to Philip. Philip led him to Christ. He took the gospel. By the way, not just any Ethiopian. How about an Ethiopian who reports directly to the queen? If Philip had gone to Ethiopia, he'd have never met the person who reports to the queen. And is the treasurer of the country, an influencer. God got the gospel to Ethiopia by a select key person carrying the gospel. How about Cyprus? 
I used to get a lot of mileage out of the fact that the original missionaries went to an island. Acts 13, they were sent out of Antioch and they went to an island called Cyprus. And Dawn and I, we were traveling deputation. I was raising money and I would say, we're going to an island. We're going to St. Vincent. Give us money. We're just like the original missionaries. We're leaving our comfort zone like they did and we're going off to Bonga Bonga land like they did. And then one day I realized I was so wrong. They did not leave their comfort zone and go off to some other culture. No, 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 no. Barnabas was from Cyprus. That's what Acts 4 says. He wasn't going off to the mission field. He was going home. And two chapters later, he and Paul have a fight and they split up. And you know what he does then? He goes home for life. You want to reach Cyprus? Find a highly influential Cypriot. Train him and send him home. In his case, a key major landholder and businessman of Cyprus. How about Eastern and Western Europe? (laughs) In the back of your Bible, you probably have the missionary maps, right? The three journeys of the missionary Paul. Listen, if a missionary is, like every seminary says, someone who crosses cultural and language barriers carrying the gospel, hate to tell you, but Paul really wasn't a missionary at all. Because he wasn't going off to some other culture or some other language. He too was going home when he went to Asia Minor. He was not Saul of Jerusalem. He was not Saul of Antioch. Five times the New Testament says he was Saul of Tarsus. God wants to make sure we understand he was from the area that he went to as a missionary, we might say. If you take a map of the Greco-Roman Empire where they spoke Greek and your Roman citizenship carried a lot of weight... And you put a map of the three missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul on top of that map, you will see he never gets out of the place where his knowledge of the culture and his ability with the language and his citizenship give him the big advantage. He knows the culture. He quotes their poetry. He even loves sports. He would have filled out a bracket. Dawn would have beaten him, but he would have filled out a bracket. He's always talking about wrestling and fighting and running races. I think he went to the Olympics. He loves sports, it seems. He knew the culture. He was effective. How about this area called Asia? Quickly. Acts 16.6 says, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, isn't that weird? The great missionary can't go to this place he wants to go to. The Holy Spirit says, no. You want to know what's even weirder? Three chapters later, this verse This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. What? The one place Paul can't go is the only place where everybody hears the gospel? How is this? Well, there are two things that happen between chapter 16 and chapter 19. The informal training of key nationals and the formal training of key nationals nationals acts 18 after this paul left athens and went to corinth and he found a jew named aquila a native of pontus which is another word for this asia area recently come from italy so somehow they had gone from asia or pontus to rome and then it says with his wife priscilla had left there 
And because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked where they were tent makers by trade. So God gets him from Pontus to Rome and back to Corinth. He got exiled from Rome. And God went through all that process so that Aquila and Priscilla could run into Paul. And because they all did the same trade, they all made tents, they started working together. And these people came to Christ. And for over a year, every night, they had all this informal training. Paul sitting around and talking to them while they stitched tents or however they made tents transform their lives i won't have time to go into detail here because i'm getting really hungry and we need to stop here but (laughs) they became such powerful teachers that they were helping straighten out those who had doctrinal error like apollos and turning him into a powerful man of god but later paul writes back to that church at corinth and he says this the churches of asia send you greetings aquila and priscilla or priscilla Together with the church in their house, they had gone back to Pontus, they had gone back to Asia, and they had become church planters. You want to reach Asia? Don't send the outsider, even if he is the Apostle Paul. Forbid him. Have the Holy Spirit forbid him. Instead, send somebody from Asia. Oh, and one other thing happened. You saw that verse we looked at a minute ago, this continued for two years so that everybody heard the word in Asia. What? What continued for two years? The formal training. The verse before it. Paul took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, so that everyone in Asia heard the gospel. He grabbed some Asians, and scholars said this was like a Bible college. Two to three years of every day, many hours, formal training. He grabbed these people from Asia. He trained them, and they carried the gospel back to Asia. And the next verse says, so that everyone in Asia heard the word of God. Again, this is God's creative strategy. Evangelizing, equipping, and empowering a select few highly influential self-reproducing nationals. Lastly, I'll give you a quick overview of how Piedmont has been doing that. This is our branch campus in Alexandria, Egypt. We set it up. We got it accredited. We've graduated dozens of leaders from across the Middle East. One of them is named Bassem Boutras. He took our last class and asked to transition, and now he is running a seminary in Cairo Right this minute, he's training 220 key leaders. First graduating class, two of our students. I love this. God has a sense of humor. That guy's name is Jihad. (laughs) His parents had something else in mind, but he came to know Christ. He started a church. He came to that cohort. He graduated from Piedmont with a master's degree. He runs a successful computer business in Beirut. He decided to start a church in the worst place on earth almost, in the southern Bekaa Valley where Syria, Lebanon, and Israel come together. Every time Hezbollah and Israel go to a war of some sort, the bombs land all around him. Hezbollah hates him. I went there and met in a little tiny room with about 30 people huddled together and got to preach to them. This is Jihad's church today. At this moment, he has 70 employees hired. They're rescuing Syrian refugees by the thousands feeding them and clothing them and sharing the love of Christ with them. And scores and scores and scores have come to Christ. You want to reach the Southern Bekaa Valley? 
You want to reach Hezbollah and Syrian refugees? Ah, you could go and try to do that as the outsider, or you could equip a key insider. I don't have time to tell you about Shamal. What a powerful story. We have a second branch campus in Bangladesh. I don't have time to tell you about Andy Matoke and Saidi Shashimba and eating caterpillars in his home. <clears throat> it's getting close to lunch. We'll skip right on by that. But I was hungry. This is Zambia, our partnership with Central Africa Baptist College. That's a picture of Dr. Beth Ashburn teaching online to these key leaders in Zambia. They already have bachelor's degrees. This is a master's level program. They are transforming their world. These are our first graduates in Zambia as they did this entire degree online from Zambia and through interactions with other people around the world using the technology. Uh, this is our key leaders in Haiti. Uh, I will be going to China next week, actually this coming Thursday. Our dream is to begin to train the key leaders in China. There are four million house churches in China. And virtually none of the pastors have had a chance to get core, the kind of theological training you get in a Sunday school class here at Wake Chapel, they haven't had access to. And our goal is to offer a degree. Pray for us. We're going next week. We have, we're going to go to all four corners. We're going to go from Hong Kong to the west of Chengdu to the north of Beijing to the east of Shanghai. We have key leaders in all places. Our goal is to get licensed in China. We actually changed our name for this purpose. We took Bible and Baptist and Christian out of our name. We are now Piedmont International University. We still have the Bible at our core and the world is our heart and God's glory is our purpose. But we took that out of our name so that we would not raise red flags for our students. This is one of our students you're looking at right here. His English name is Jude. We have a number of men knocking out a master's degree. We have one man who's got a PhD. We have an army of translators ready to go to translate entire degree programs into Chinese. Our goal is to train the Apostle Paul, to train the Aquila, to train the Priscilla, and let them change their world. We have translated a degree into Arabic. We translated one into Spanish. We're processing Vietnamese. We're actually partnering with folks right here in Raleigh. We have just hired bilingual folks to translate an entire master's degree into Portuguese and uh, have a grant for that, and we're going to go to Chinese immediately. Every obedient Christian will be personally involved in world evangelism. Lastly, how about where the rubber meets the road in our lives? Everybody in this room has connections with other ethne who've come to this area. On your way home, you'll stop at the convenience store and that person behind the counter, that person working on the construction project two doors down, maybe right out here. The world has come. We need to get connected, build relationships, lead them to Christ here. And the ones that have high influence capacity Help them to go back and make a difference. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing the gospel around to us. We didn't deserve it, but we are so grateful. Help us to be strategically involved in finishing the project. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Charles, I'd have been happy for you to continue had you not spoken about eating bugs. <laughs> what a difference in perspective. God has brought 
people to us. Charles, thank you, sir. Thank you very, very much. Whether it's down the street, across town, the hymn says, take the name of Jesus with you. You go to visit a neighbor who doesn't know the Lord Jesus. You cultivate that man in the, uh, that woman in the convenience store. Someone who works in the same building as you. Take the name of Jesus with you. 116 in your hymnal. If you'll turn there with us, please. 116. Maybe that God has spoken to someone's heart in this room this morning. Putting his hand on your heart. If you'd like to share that with us, we'll meet you here. But whatever else happens or doesn't happen, you do what God is bidding you to do right now. You can do it right where you sit. You can step out. What God is speaking to you about doing, be obedient to his call, to his word, to you, to his will for you. Someone shared the gospel with you. Someone told you who Jesus was, what he had done for them, and what Jesus would do for them. Carry that along, would you? Don't let it be a broken chain. We can't reach the world. We can reach one person that God brings to us. And if we do not do that, we have failed. Have we not? When was the last time, dear friend, when was the last time you shared what Jesus did for you with somebody else? We need to get busy. There are new people moving into Fuquay every day. We have a task before us that God's given to us. We have the privilege. We know who Jesus is. We know what he's done for us. How can we be quiet? Curtis Holloman is our deacon of the day. Curtis, if you'll come, please, and dismiss us with prayer. You'll have an opportunity. I'm going to ask Dr. Ms. Pitt to join me. Uh, now, they won't have time to give you a whole compendium of uh, all the courses that, that Piedmont has and all the countries that they're serving in. But if you have a strategic question, you can get an answer today, okay? And you can pick up some information. Char, uh, Charles and, and Don, you'll join me, Curtis, if you'll lead us in prayer, please. <clears throat> Would you bow and pray with me? Father, we have gathered together in this place today to, to worship you. My prayer is that we have done that with forgiven hearts, that we have done it from our heart. Father, we thank you for Piedmont International University, for the work that they do preparing young minds to go into your world and to 
not only preach and teach the gospel, but to work in other areas and that they might be a light unto your people and to those that are lost. Thank you for Dr. Pettit, the leadership he's given to this university, his enthusiasm. We just ask that you continue to lead and guide this, this institution and its leaders. Father, we bring to you our list of prayer needs. There are different needs in that list. Some need healing, some need comfort, some just need your presence. We especially pray for Dr. Al's family. We thank you for his life, his influence on this community, <clears throat> his willingness to share your gospel. Just lead and guide the, the family as they mourn his loss. Father, we ask that you know, now go with us, go into our fields of, of witness. You lead and guide us, direct us. And we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.